0: Two, three. Welcome back to another episode of Experience by Design Podcast, where we explore experience designs of all kinds. I'm your host for this week, Gary David. It was many lifetimes ago when the guest for this episode appeared and was recorded beyond the pandemic, home confinement situation we're all in, or many of us are in, and the seemingly sudden mass acknowledgement of protests over discriminatory treatment of blacks in America, today's topic might not seem particularly important or relevant. After all, it's just talking about bicycles. But at the same time, the topic of cycling, exercise, the freedom to exercise, the liberty to feel like you can get outside to exercise, and more generally, inclusive environments, is exactly on topic for this moment and is the topic of this podcast. So more than cycling, it's about how we are able to participate in activities that we want to and enjoy, and to what extent are some groups not able to take as much advantage of those opportunities. For that topic, today's guest is Lindsey Goldman, who was a professional cyclist, as well as the director of marketing for USA Cycling, or as is known in the cycling circles, USAC. Since our conversation, she actually has moved on to become director of marketing at Allele Cycling, as well as director of marketing at Wadi Inc. And Wadi Inc. is a is a brand and a team known in triathlon circles pretty widely. Lindsay was also the owner and GM, general manager, of Hagen's Berman Supermint Pro Cycling. It's a long word, a long team name, and cycling often has long names. And that team was a professional cycling team. And the fact that I actually said women's professional cycling team is evidence of this larger problem that we're discussing in this episode. If someone just said professional cycling team, and left it at that, said nothing else, the default people would hear is that, well, it must be a men's cycling team. That's what we would assume when we hear professional cycling team, men on a team you know, as professional cyclists. So we have this tendency to exceptionalize the women's team as being unique, distinctive, or unusual. And we know that by the fact that often we say women's professional cycling team versus saying men's professional cycling team or just saying professional cycling team. That we ought to do the work is part of the problem of the tacit bias and the latent structures that we carry with us around gender in professional sports. I've been around cycling for about 15 years now and spending 10 of those years putting on cycling events. During this time I've seen the question being repeatedly asked about how do we increase women's participation in cycling. The question goes beyond just what an individual promoter does or doesn't do, although We can do or don't do a lot, and that's definitely part of the conversation. But a much broader part of this conversation is whether society is in fact a space where women can feel safe to participate in cycling either as a sport or just a leisure activity, a recreational activity for fitness. Do women feel safe cycling in public? Is the broader cycling community a welcoming environment for women? How are female female athletic bodies viewed in culture and society? these are just some of the questions we could ask around this topic of how to increase diversity and inclusion of women in cycling and these are topics we explore in this podcast another element of this moment this broader cultural moment we're finding ourselves in is the extent to which bicycle sales have increased during the pandemic it's really interesting and really great to see that bikes have been flying off of shelves at bike shops as people stuck at home and having the road suddenly safe to ride on are taking to the roads on new bikes. But it really does raise the question of how long is that going to last? I mean, at some point, cars are going to be back on the road. And those drivers are likely going to be distracted by their phones. And those drivers distracted by their phones are going to likely run into those increasing number of cyclists who are riding their bikes. So it even goes into the larger infrastructure of cycling and safety of cycling. What can we do to promote cycling as a general activity, given there's more bikes out there? So taken together, we can think about all of these larger structural issues, cultural, social, uh, even physical in terms of the roads, associated with the topics that we explored in this podcast with Lindsay. In her capacity during this time of the podcast, we talked about the role that USA Cycling plays as an organization towards these issues. What role can USAC play to help with competition to help with making safer roads and greater access and opportunity but the challenges are greater than any one organization it's a challenge we all have to take on as we're finding out right now with the black lives matter protests people taking to the streets saying in that capacity you know what it's enough enough is enough it's time that we as a collective you know society do more and require more and demand more more change so We recorded this a while ago. Um, I've been looking forward to having the right moment to put it up. And in some ways, that right moment feels like right now. And we hope that by listening to this conversation, which in one hand is just about cycling, just about bikes, just about women and cycling, it really does speak to a lot larger topic than one particular domain. It speaks to how do we as a society, as a community, think about, creating more inclusive opportunities, listening to voices, and doing what we can do to make those voices represented, heard, and make change to make those voices feel comfortable and take part in the activities that they seek to take part in. We hope that this conversation takes you a further step down the path towards creating ideas and solutions, and hope you enjoy it. And I was thinking about chatting with you today, and I was kind of confounded about how to approach it. Because I know a lot about cycling, but I don't know that anybody who's going to be listening to my podcast as a regular listener knows anything about cycling. <laughs> so it's one of those things about how to how much detail do you kind of go into about cycling? And how much do we not have to talk about that? And I don't know what the answer to that is.
1: I can pretend I'm talking to my mother who knows nothing about cycling. And I try and explain things in ways that make sense to her and are relatable.
0: I kind of have to do the same thing about my job. Is that just like a mom thing you think? Or is it something about our jobs that our moms don't understand?
1: I think it's a mom thing, except as a mother, I'd like to believe I'm exempt from that.
0: Yeah. I mean, I'm a father. I have three daughters. I would like to think I'm exempt from that too, but nothing will make you feel less in touch and less cool than having kids. Because I think, because when I like, I'm listening to the radio, my oldie station is like listening to Iron Maiden. I think that's pretty cool because that's the music I grew up with in high school. It was like this. My oldies is cool music, like grunge or, you know, things like that. And my kids still aren't impressed. I might as well be listening to to Dion or something.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I suspect that'll come. My daughter is just about to turn two. So she's, she does express preferences for music, but she only knows what I introduce her to. So we're not at the point yet where she can make fun of my tastes, but I sense we'll get there.
0: Well, yeah. And and let me know how that goes because that's a different podcast, but I think it'd be an entertaining one as well. And (laughs) I guess since we're on the kid trip, and I wanted to ask you something because of the work you've been doing with women's cycling and talking about your work at USA Cycling, and part of the reason I want to talk to you was all the work you put into creating a sponsor experience, a member experience, a fan experience. One of the things that's always bothersome to me as the father of three daughters is that when I tell people I'm the father of three daughters, they automatically go to how horrible that must be oh my God, you're going to have three teenager girls at the same time. Oh, you're in trouble. Oh, you know, watch out for for that. Oh, you must have to deal with all this stuff. And I I always puzzle at that kind of reaction regarding how as society we think about genders and children and what, what toll they take on our lives.
1: Yeah, I've, I've heard similar comments and jokes about how my husband will have to get a shotgun ready when my daughter is of dating age, and I think people just fall back on saying awkward cliches because they don't know how else to fill the air.
0: Yeah, I guess so. I guess that's right. And you know, I actually did call out some some nice older ladies on this recently and said, you know, do you would you say the same thing if I had three boys? And they kind of stopped and looked. And on the one hand, it's it's feeling awkward conversation, but as a sociologist, I do start to think, how much does that tap into our underlying assumptions or c- categorizations or conceptions about genders and how does that influence everything else? Like, for instance, women cycling. And for those who are listening, you know, your your experience both in a, being a professional cyclist and managing a professional cycling team of women, do you have, I mean, was it those kinds of filling air comments, did you have to experience those same kind of things in the same ways?
1: Uh I think people knew better than to say stuff like that to me because by the time I made it to being a team owner and, uh, at the point I was where I became a professional cyclist, the people that would be talking to me knew me well enough to know that I wasn't really interested in hearing nonsense like that. And, you know, most people have been very supportive, at least the people I talked to have been very supportive of my team, my experience, my cycling career, uh, with that said, I I see a lot of things on the internet that indicate to me that the people I am fortunate enough to interact with are not the general population and there are a lot of chauvinists who are willing to jump on articles on, for example, cycling tips and say all sorts of ridiculous things where I have to wonder if if they've never encountered a strong, capable woman in their lives or if somehow they've lived under a rock and they just seem to have these viewpoints that are so... Uh, I don't even want to say outdated because I don't think there was ever a time where women demonstrated a total inability to do anything with any measure of effectiveness, but just this disdain for women. And I've been lucky enough to not personally come across that, but I know it's out there and I know I have peers who have experienced more of that. And, you know, as they seek out trying to push for equality for women in sport, they come across more barriers and chauvinism and stereotypes and good old boys clubs. But I've been lucky. I have a lot of very supportive people around me and I have a husband that raises our daughter in the same way that I want her raised, which is to be a strong, independent female who doesn't even think about being female. I don't approach things from a female perspective. I approach them from my perspective and I think for women, you know, I I gave someone in my office today some personal advice around her career and said, you know, if you want a seat at the table, you have to take it, especially as a woman. People are not pulling out chairs and making room for you. You need to advocate for yourself. You need to fight for yourself. You need to be aggressive and be fearless. And that's how you succeed. And that's how you don't let things hold you back.
0: And speaking of your office for a second, you are at USA Cycling, right? Is that your primary? professional role right now or is that just one of them
1: no that's 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 the only one it's like three okay. jobs all rolled into one so the idea of having anything else is impossible I would I would cry I cry a lot <laughs> anyways.
0: yeah but well, we don't want that to happen especially not in the podcast although it might be good for for ratings but we don't necessarily want to go that direction and you know for, for people that don't know what USA cycling is I know what USA cycling is but for those who don't know and people if you're at a party or talking to your mom and you know you describe what it does, and who it is, how do you shorthand it for folks?
1: We are the national governing body for cycling in America, so we're the only organization with the ability to send athletes to compete in the Olympics. We also sanction and promote races around America in all different types of cycling, and we support the growth of healthy and safe cycling and try and build a welcoming and inclusive cycling community for all.
0: And this is a thing of, of which I find as a race promoter, I find unbelievably challenging. And I am not envious at all because from a customer experience design perspective, those are three very different categories. I mean, the, the the people going to the Olympics, the professionals, the amateurs who might be participating in races or events, and then the casual person who's just doesn't even use the word cyclist in his or her vocabulary. They just ride a bike. I mean, so I, this just seems like a really daunting kind of scope to get your arms around in terms of, okay, what is it that I do in terms of marketing the product and trying to service the membership?
1: Uh, It is daunting. And as an organization, we have been questioned by people externally who have asked, "Are, are you trying to do too many things? And internally, we've had a lot of conversations about how to, as our CEO says, ensure we're not trying to boil the ocean. And I think it's a valid concern, but we have, been very mindful of that in developing our mission and our plans around that mission. And the objective is not necessarily that we are taking action alone and trying to move the needle in every area by ourselves, but rather in some areas, we are strategically supporting organizations that are already doing great work. So, you know, we'll continue to be the only organization that is really preparing our Team USA athletes and getting them ready to go to the Olympics, but when it comes to things like junior development, while we have a department dedicated to junior and collegiate development, we also create partnerships with organizations like uh, Nike Leagues, other junior clubs and teams around America, Little Bellas, People for Bikes, um, and when we look at these partnerships to support these organizations whose primary mission is working in that area, so. We're not single-handedly trying to do these things alone. We are aggregating the work of all these different organizations, supporting them where we can, lending our voice and our firepower as a national governing body to these organizations to try and help further their mission.
0: One of the things, and you don't have to even respond to this statement. I'm, I'm going to make this the statement. I found, because I used to be a runner, I still am a runner, used to do running races, used to do triathlons too, and I'm a cyclist. I have found out of the three cyclists to be probably the neediest bunch and the most demanding bunch in terms of what they are expecting and what they're wanting. And I mean that if I go to a running race, I don't expect to get a cash prize. If I finish on a podium in my age group, I don't expect to get any kind of reward. I might, maybe might get a medal, but what, as long as there's porta potties and the course, the miles are marked accurately. I'm pretty happy in terms of producing a, a bike race. There, there's a lot more my experience has been in terms of trying to match what expectations there are. And I, I, I don't quite know where that comes from. I don't know like what, and maybe you have a sense of it. Maybe you don't from your research, the culture of the cycling, you know, you know, activity versus other recreational or amateur sport activities.
1: Well, that's a little bit difficult for me to speak on, Because my only perspective really is in cycling. So I started cycling maybe 13 years ago. Uh, Yeah, 13 years ago. And that was just at the beginning of my 20s. And since then, that's all I've done. I've never done a triathlon. I've never done any running events. I've never really done any sporting events as an adult other than cycling. So my community has been entirely cyclist. So I honestly Mm -hmm. don't know if there's, you know, if the demands in a different sport are less if people are more easygoing and flexible. I do know that cyclists are a particular bunch. There's a lot of different subcultures in the cycling community and people feel very passionately about their subcultures and the rules of their subcultures and what they accept and what they expect. And you know, it's a tough community. I started as a mountain biker and we thought roadies looked snotty and unwelcoming and unfriendly and
0: that's because they are.
1: It's no, very I'm true. a
0: kind of joke. Almost joking. A little.
1: Almost joking. A little bit. It's actually entirely true. So then <laughs> I then I became a roadie. I fit right in, uh, and I realized that I love my friends in the road cycling community. I've. I mean, that's where I've built my entire career, and I couldn't be happier with the connections I've made and the people I've met. But yeah, we are a snotty bunch. We have our rules. Literally, there are the rules that set out things like your socks and requirements around how you wear your sunglasses and how you participate in rides. And, you know, some of it's there to create a culture that's respectful of the history behind the sport. Some of it's there to create a a safer environment. Some of the rules are there just because we can put them there and we can inflict them on people. And it's, it's our way of staking our claim to our culture, but it does end up making cyclists a difficult bunch to service. And for an organization like USA Cycling that, Meets the needs of or tries to meet the needs of all cyclists, it's very difficult because what a mountain biker wants is different from what a road racer wants, which is different from what a BMX rider wants, which is different from you get the point here. Meeting the needs of such a diverse community is very difficult, and our members are extremely passionate about what they want and what they need, and social media has given them access to constant communication and contact both with our organization and with each other to fuel conversations around preferences and opinions and needs. And sometimes that, as the director of membership and marketing who is responsible for making our members happy and watching everything that gets said on the internet, that can be very daunting. But on the other hand, I appreciate the opportunity to engage in such a real-time format and you know, I'd rather have people that are willing to share their thoughts and feelings and be engaged than a community of people who are passive and don't really care and don't feel too excited about the sport.
0: So the the social media um, coverage is is related to the crying all the time. Then that would be the the connection because I know uh, after, after I put on a race, I mean, I, like the, literally the day after I put on a race. I don't want to go anywhere near social media because I don't want to hear anything from anybody about any small thing that might've not been up to their expectations or standards. And so I can only imagine trying to, this is exactly why I wanted to talk to you because to me, this is like the biggest design challenge I could think of is USA Cycling, trying to service all these different levels of cyclists across all these different disciplines and do it in a way that, that tries to please all of them.
1: Yes, that is very challenging
0: and i don't even know if it's possible and this is where you know especially i don't spend a lot of time on cyclist twitter i mean i'm on a little bit i don't, I don't recommend get, it <laughs> no i really don't i mean it's it's there are people with opinions and then people who don't like those opinions and they're all very eager to tell you about them at the same time stepping back from that and thinking what is the job right and who are we trying to get at and how how can you try to you know satisfy roadies, and then gravel grinders and, and, and Rondonais and all these other things, which to a lot of people who are listening may not make any sense, but just think about if your user base or your customer base is so dramatically varied that they can't even talk to one another, but yet you have to you have to please all of them.
1: Yeah, that's been probably the biggest challenge for this organization historically is figuring out how to meet the needs of such a diverse set of communities within our overall cycling community and just you know there's really a butterfly effect on different decisions so there's things in the past that have happened here where someone made a decision based on member feedback and that decision changing a regulation or something about how we we conducted business it fixed the original problem, but then it created a new problem for a different population. So, for example, we had we used to have a requirement that if you wanted to be a club sanctioned with USA Cycling, you had to put on a race. People didn't like right. that. There were a lot of complaints, so USA Cycling eliminated that requirement to answer the complaints and alleviate the burden on clubs and ensure that races weren't being put on by people that didn't want to put them on because that would be a less quality experience. Mm-hmm that led to complaints about how USA Cycling wasn't supporting the growth of the race scene. And because we removed that requirement, we effectively are seen as causing shrinkage in the American race scene. So it's your
0: fault. So it's our fault. Okay. That's good to know. The problem
1: is who do you make happy? The people that wanted the requirement removed or the people that think that requirement was critical to building the American race scene. Ultimately the decision was made to keep that requirement off of the clubs because again, do you really want to go to a race put on by someone who doesn't want to put it on? It's, you know, how much work a race is. Your listeners might never have been race promoters, but I mean, it's like running a small business for a period of time. Do you really want to run a small business? If you don't want to run a small business, no, it's going to be a crappy product and it's not going to go very well. So We don't want races to happen put on by people who don't have the time, the willingness, the energy, or the enthusiasm for putting them on. So the requirement has gone away. We have not reinstated it. It just means that we have a different population of people who are unhappy about something else. But the one expression I've heard talked about with our members, and it's said in jest, but it's kind of true, is there's two things that are true about our members – They don't like anything and they don't want us to change anything.
0: (laughs) That is actually, I love that because that's actually exactly it. I mean, it's, it's, you know, and I guess at a certain point, you know, how do you, how do you even start? Because I know you're undergoing this this shift or transformation and membership experience. How do you then even start to think about using personas or using kinds of what's our target audience when you have so many different groups and they all want it to be different but not in any particular way that changes anything for them?
1: Well, on the broader scale, our mission as an organization is wide enough that it covers comfortably all of the different cycling sub-communities. So things like focusing on winning medals at the Olympics, that's something that can appeal to a lot of people, even people that know nothing about cycling. Uh, promoting an agenda that supports equality for women in the sport. Again, that's cross community. A lot of people can get into that as an agenda item. Juniors, more kids on bikes who doesn't want to support youth and a healthier lifestyle for American kids. Safety for cyclists. Again, whether you're riding on the road because you're a roadie or you are using the road to get to your favorite mountain bike trail or you're commuting, it's something that appeals to everybody. So Uh, at the surface, the majority of our mission is appealing to all the people that we're trying to appeal to, and that's where we focus our target audience. So going forward, we're just making a bigger effort to show non-racers that USA Cycling is working to serve them, and there are things our organization is doing that are inclusive for those members of the cycling community, and that we want to do a better job of welcoming them.
0: It is such a huge task, because I don't know you know, as a person who's engaged in a lot of running races, I've never, you know, I I don't know what USTAF does. I mean, I know they do something. I know USTAF, the Track and Field Association for the United States, they're involved in putting on Olympic of, you know, sending people to the Olympics and all these other things. But I don't know that their remit is even, we want more people to be running or even USA Triathlon. You know how was it that USA Cycling said no? We need to take these things on, whereas some of these other organizations, like USA Swim, may may not be as front and center in it uh, in their in terms of their activities.
1: Well, there's a lot of national governing bodies that are overseeing sports that are not necessarily done as part of a lifestyle, so. Okay. You might be really into fencing, but you don't wake up and say like, "I'm just going to fence this morning for 45 minutes before I go to work." Like it's something I'm go for a
0: fence. I'm yeah, go on the trainer and fence.
1: Yeah, and you don't. Right. Nobody like you don't triathlon non-competitively. Like I guess you sure. could get up and go for a swim, and then go for a bike ride, and then go for a run, or if I got the order yep. right there. But yep, ultimately triathlon is naturally competitive. So. You know, cycling is different. People cycle competitively, but they cycle for fun. It's a lifestyle. People who consider themselves cyclists, that's part of their identity. And you don't even have to be an athlete, you know, by definition. You don't have to be competitive. You don't have to train. You don't have to be super into it to be a cyclist. You can just ride a few times a month and still call yourself a cyclist. So it's more of a lifestyle. And with that we see an opportunity to serve a bigger community.
0: And have you at that point about you know calling oneself a cyclist one of the things i do with my students in a class i teach on you know sociology of sports is i'll ask students how many of you can physically run um right now if i asked you to almost every hand goes up how many of you would classify yourselves as a runner no one's hand goes up or a few hands go up and so at what point do you make that transformation from i ride a bike to i'm a cyclist right and have you done any work or is there any give any thoughts on what needs, what needs to be in place for a person to consider themselves, not just to be
1: engaging in an activity, but to be living the activity, if you know what I mean? Uh, we want our community to self-identify. So we would never presume to tell someone they are or are not a cyclist by our definition. If you rode a bike once when you were 15 and you want to call yourself a cyclist, welcome to our community. You're a cyclist. If you ride your bike every single day and you do it professionally in the World Tour and you're going to go to the Tour de France next year – and you don't think yourself a cyclist, then that's fine. You don't have to consider yourself a cyclist. So I think USA Cycling historically has been seen as only serving racers. And that makes us kind of an exclusive community where we're only welcoming to people who want to pin on a number and contest competitive events. And that's not who we are. It may have been who we were in the past, but it's not who we are anymore. And at this point, we are open to anybody that wants to say, I'm a cyclist, whatever that means to them, however that looks. And However, they want to express their identity.
0: And have you done any kind of work, kind of like a journey mapping of the trajectory where people might, they see themselves as that thing. And if they're able to maintain it or they lose it, like, and I don't want to beat up on roadies, although that is fun. You know, I, yeah, I'm a cyclist. I went out and got my bike. I got a kit, you know, I got a cycling outfit for people that don't know what a kit means. And I'm going to go show up to the group ride and I go to show up for the group ride the first time and I'm um, yelled at, and people are not nice to me, and then they drop me, and I ride in alone, and I'm never going back again. And so I, now I don't consider myself a cyclist. And as, as, as parody as that story might sound, it's not un, unrealistic in terms of actually happening.
1: It, it is not unrealistic, and I'm certain there's people, and especially I've heard women have had experiences that made them feel put off from engaging in certain group activities in the sport or that have made them feel like they weren't welcome or as included but I've not heard anyone say that they no longer chose to consider themselves a cyclist fortunately I've heard mostly you know when people have shared experiences like that it was just off putting to whatever person salesperson group etc made them feel that way so it really didn't cause people to change how they self identified
0: I do think that you know you're raising the point of salesperson, and I do think one of the, even though social media can be a major drain on all of our emotional well-being, at the same time it does open up people's awareness of what different groups might be going through, like like you know women and cyclists. One person I follow on Twitter, uh, A.C. Shilton, who's also a journalist, she was relating a story about going to a cycling store to buy something and being mansplained. Now, she had had worked in cycling stores for a long time, and she knew this stuff. And for men, they might not think it's a real thing until you see it on Twitter or someplace else in real time, then realize, wow, this is a thing that women have to go through all the time. And what role, not just does USAC play in trying to solve that, but men in general to make that experience of the activity more welcoming, more inclusive, and more vibrant because there's a greater pool of people who are engaged in it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, I definitely agree with that.
0: And so in terms of that, you know, trying to get people even to see USA Cycling. So if I do a race, if I'm participating in a race, I have to join. If it's if it's sanctioned by USAC, I have to become a member. But what's the engagement? Do you, are you able to track engagement of people beyond just that I have a license for a one day or for a year and and that's all I know about it?
1: Uh, We're able to gather some data uh, on our members using our current systems, but we're also in the process of implementing new systems that will make it easier for us to understand our whole community, gather insights on specific member groups, see statistics and better data on all of our members and the people that interact with USA Cycling, whether through purchasing a one-day license or subscribing to our newsletter or even just coming to our website and clicking around.
0: So what was it? That's that's fascinating. Is that part of the new membership experience kind of initiative that that I had read about through one of the emails, which is why I contacted you in the first place? Is that part of that that program, or how was what was the genesis of this t- decision that we need better analytics to better engage with with our members?
1: Ah, uh, some of our systems are outdated on the back end. On the front end, we are aware that. Our website and the purchase path for becoming a member of our community is unwieldy and has issues that make it challenging for potential members to interact with our system. So we wanted to streamline that, remove barriers to entry, provide better data on our back end just for simple reporting. And as we've looked at expanding our community, we want to better understand who wants what content when and how we can serve that up to ensure the best customer experience. And is this
0: this a focus that's always been there? Or is this one that is, if we're going to be strategic in our growth and our impact for the goals that you had laid out, that we need to kind of step up our game? It's it's an interesting shift. Uh, This is. But not surprising in other ways.
1: This is new. So we had a new CEO come on. Uh, just under a year ago, and he brought a lot of change to the organization and a new mentality for how to approach the community and service the community. And with that then came my boss, who is the chief commercial officer. He started just before me at the beginning of September, 2019. And then I started right after that. And you know, there's other turnover in the organization that has brought in new people to work towards this new initiative. So a lot of these things are new changes and the team members that have been here throughout the process have also shifted to meet the requirements of our new agenda.
0: And what, in terms of, that's a lot for an organization to take on. Anytime an organization has like all that kind of turnover at the top level, it can be disruptive at the least, but in some ways disruption can be good as you're laying out because then it creates greater opportunities. I mean without getting into you know the, the daily ongoings at USA Cycling how has that shift been managed both internally and also from the employee experience angle but also in terms of members who are already suspicious potentially of the organization for whatever reason because it's not they don't feel like it's servicing their subculture I mean how 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 is the communication happening to both internally and externally, create a sense of confidence in this new kind of direction?
1: Internally, we all talk all the time and we have more meetings than I've ever had in any organization. So if we're not meeting, we're getting ready for a meeting or we're leaving a meeting. I'm literally sitting here looking at my breakfast and it is 1.31 PM, but I have not had time to eat my breakfast because I have been in meetings all day. So between communicating in meetings and then constant interactions through, we use Slack, so it allows us to create channels and sub-conversations and direct conversations. We're able to interact a lot and share messages, have an opportunity to make certain that everyone who needs to be incorporated in a decision-making process or hearing important news for the organization gets that information. Um, we also Have people that work remotely, and so we use all the channels that we have available to us to communicate with those team members to ensure they're kept up to speed on changes in the organization with our mission, et cetera. We have regular town halls where everyone gets together as a group and hears from the senior leadership team about initiatives, goals, objectives, upcoming important events for the organization, et cetera. We're trying to improve our customer outreach, so we're engaging more on social media. If we see questions from members or comments arise, where appropriate we engage, you know, if it's someone just writing, say USA Cycling sucks, which we get that, uh, that we probably won't necessarily engage because it's not really productive. But if someone asks a question or if someone vents a frustration about something that we can actually solve or explain, or in some way mitigate their unhappiness, then we're making a concerted effort now to engage with those members or those um, social media participants and, try and improve their experience with the organization and communicate that we're making changes. We're listening. We care about their concerns.
0: That's a lot. And if you want to ask me a question so you can eat your breakfast, I mean, we can do that too. Cause I'm feeling bad.
1: No, you're but fine. I'm-, I'm a slow eater. It would take me forever. And it's, it's dry toast at this point. So that's even harder to eat quietly. So your, your breakfast today is dry toast. Well, it wasn't quite so dry like three hours ago, but now it's not looking so good.
0: And is a, is a toast something you brought to work with you or are you just kind of able to work from home?
1: Uh, so I, I'm in the Springs right now. I work I work in Scottsdale and I work from home in Scottsdale. And then when I'm in the Springs, I spend almost all of my time at the office, which means I grocery shop and I take all my food right back to the office and leave it here. So I don't know if that's sad or really efficient, but – all of my groceries are at the office, so this is this is bread that I keep here, with olive oil that I keep here, and yogurt that I keep here because I live at the office.
0: We're gonna go with efficient because I think calling it sad would 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 not be. Emotional. It would be sad. It would be sad. Yeah, no, I don't want to call it sad. I I think it's devoted, and I do think it's you know it's you're taking on a lot as an organization and. It's, it's not an enviable task by any stretch, which is why, you know, as a race promoter, you know, in dealing with like, you know, I got to get my permit up or I got to get whatever up. It's always trying to remember that there's a person on the other end of whatever I'm doing or communicating, who's just trying to figure out how to make these things happen. And it's, it's such a massive remit as an organization that it can't be easy to stay on track of every little detail that's going on. And again, you know, this not being a cycling podcast, I don't want to get into the weeds of the local associations, and and payouts to them, because that's like, a whole other topic. But there's a lot of moving parts to stay on top of that. It's understandable if everything is not always up to specifications of what I as a cyclist might might want to see because of that large kind of mission that the organization has.
1: Yeah. Basically, I summarize it by saying we're doing the best we can. We're human. We're not a large organization. We're a nonprofit. I think people forget that and forget that we don't have a huge budget. We're all stretched too thin. We do the best we can. Do things slip through the cracks? Yes. Do I personally forget things? Yes. Have we made mistakes? Absolutely. Will we probably make a lot more? Yes. I can guarantee that we're trying to do the best we can, but there will be people that will not love what we're doing or that will feel like we haven't gotten them what they want. And you know, it's just about managing what you can control, communicating what you can't, but are trying to, and being transparent, accessible, honest, and open.
0: And in terms of your own professional career, because I was looking at your LinkedIn, you know, having a consulting background in business development, I mean, from a consulting standpoint, Looking at the organization and the challenges that it's taking on, how does this compare to other kinds of industries that you've worked in, in terms of its complexity of customer base and trying to deliver and design experiences to meet their expectations?
1: Uh, This organization has challenges that I've seen in many other organizations, you know, where you have people wearing multiple hats, difficulties breaking down silos and changing organizational behavior. Getting people to transition to a new mindset—you know—that's always a difficulty. Uh, the thing that's different with USA Cycling versus the companies that I've supported in my non-cycling work is the level of passion here. You know, people are not particularly stoked about—I don't know, IT or work in the intelligence community. It's just a job, and they go to work and they do their job, and that's it. But here, people work at USA Cycling because they have some sort of emotional connection to what we're doing. They care about the athletes or the Olympic mission or supporting grassroots racing or helping kids or they really love cycling or there's some reason that's drawn them here that makes them passionate. And that passion can be a downfall at times because it makes people overly emotional about their work. Sometimes it comes across as defensive or they they try and take on too much and it ends up, you know, I, I'm guilty of that. It ends up kind of breaking down my ability to be effective and sharp and energized when I need to be. But it also is our greatest asset because it means that people are willing to take on more and they're willing to go above and beyond and they're willing to do whatever it takes to support each other and our membership.
0: I'm really glad you brought that up because I I didn't think about it in those terms. And a lot of companies try to spend a lot of time trying to figure out what's our purpose you know, how do we create passion in our organization for not just what we do, but why we do it. And from what you're saying, it's totally understandable that USA Cycling doesn't have that challenge. We all know what our purpose is. We all know what we're passionate about. We all know why we're here. You really are starting with why from the very beginning because people otherwise wouldn't have chosen to be in that organization to begin with.
1: Yeah, that's that's true. And You know The people that I work with on a day-to-day basis, I'm just continually impressed by their dedication to this job and their willingness to take on anything that's asked of them. And that's what really makes us successful. That's what's making my team more successful as they take on more and more and try and expand to reach a wider target audience. It's just this passion for doing a great job. And because we're not a huge organization, you get to see... Direct results of your work. So I've worked for places where you know even winning a multi-million dollar contract didn't actually feel like much of anything because it was such a large organization, it was just a blip on the radar. But here, you know, you can do a great social media post and you see positive impact from our members immediately, or you change one rule or modify one thing and you get feedback from the community. Sometimes it's bad, but yeah, well, sometimes you're like, uh, a little bit less feedback might yes. be okay. But other times it's good and it's very validating.
0: Yeah, yeah, it is that double edged sword that you know every every company wants customers who care about their product, and part of the challenge of that is when the customers care about their product, they're going to let you know when they're not happy with the product, and you hope they let you know when they are happy with the product. Yes. And often we don't we don't get as much as the good as we do the negative, but nevertheless, you don't have to worry about trying to get people who care. I remember, hopefully, cares about the product because they care about the activity. They're connected with it in some kind of way. And that's yep. a good thing, right? I mean, that makes that makes coming to work every day with toast um, worth yes. it. Yes. With, with, with keeping your groceries there. You know, another thing, I was reading about something you wrote on the sponsor experience, and you used the word a sponsor experience because you were the director sportif, you were the manager of a, of a cycling team, women's cycling team. And the quote I wanted to kind of talk about a little bit is where you said, it's not enough for me just to win something and wear a logo emblazoned hat on the podium. No, you have to ask your sponsor how they want you promoting their brand and then do whatever accomplishes that. And I thought that that was so prescient because the, you know, if you think about who's the customer when you're running a professional team, you you have the customer in terms of the people on the team, but then you have the sponsor who's the customer and then you have the fans who are the customer and the race promoter who's the customer. I mean there's a lot of different customers going on when you're trying to manage a team and please all those different people.
1: Yeah. I mean, do I have that kind of right? Is that accurate? Yes. And for me it was a matter of you have to look at the most important thing. Where is your money coming from? Okay? What do you need to do to make the person giving you the money happy? That's what your first order of business is. And that's where, you know, I think a lot of athletes assume that the sponsor wants them to to win or get on the podium. And that's often not the case. The sponsor probably has a marketing agenda and a mission that if you ask them about it and understand what they are trying to accomplish, that will give you better perspective into what you need to do to help them with that.
0: Yeah. I wanted to tell you a quick story. Um, I don't know if you know Nicole Freeman at all. Uh, I know her name. It sounds familiar. Yeah. She was U S she was national champ. This is going back, you know, Way back, so for the older cycling fans in the audience, so Nicole ran a team of Ford Basis, and she was also national champ on the road, and when I first found out that I was going to have my first daughter, who's now 14 years old, almost 15, I wanted my daughter to have something in her room to reflect women's cycling, so I emailed Nicole and told her this story, and she sent me a water bottle, a Ford uh, Basis water bottle, signed by members of the team. And I still have that water bottle. And you talk about like creating moments that matter. That was a major moment. And actually one of the people that I'm still friends with from that team, her name back then was Alicia Lyons. And now it's Alicia Edmonston. And she's a professional cyclist. And I have a picture actually of my daughter when Nicole came to a local bike shop, when Nicole, when my daughter was a baby in Nicole's Jersey while Nicole is holding her. That's cool. (laughs) It's really cool. And it's like, you know, what kind of other kind of sport? Could you get a professional to, re, to give you that kind of attention to a fan that she doesn't know and really wasn't even necessarily a fan? I wasn't following Nicole's career that closely, although she was from Boston. I live outside of Boston. But it's like that kind of thing I think you're talking about of the difference that this sport or as many ways women's sports can make is that the access to the athletes is so direct and so immediate that the, the opportunity to create those moments of that matter are, are, are more present.
1: Yeah. And to what extent
0: do you get, you, you get a chance to do that as a female professional cyclist?
1: And it's if you go to a race, you know, if you go to a, a professional baseball game or a professional football game, you generally don't get to walk around the venue and see the athletes warming up or cooling down or having a team meeting. But in cycling, there is that accessibility and that sets up an opportunity for it to be fan friendly. It's just a matter of the events and the teams looking to capitalize on that opportunity to create a fan experience that's memorable.
0: And how much at USA Cycling, or even as the director of a team, do you have to coach up and train young athletes, new athletes on this kind of social media awareness, a fan experience, friendliness, and availability? Is Do you have programs on that or is that just something that they learn on the job?
1: Uh, we are actually implementing some new programs around social media training and media training. So helping our athletes understand how to manage their own brands on social media, and then how they can be most effective in talking to the media. Historically, we've done things to support and help our national team athletes, but to my knowledge, and I could be mistaken, but we've not had a formal program to really educate athletes on how to do that best. But we are working on doing that now because ultimately part of our mission is this concept of win, celebrate, and inspire, which requires that the athletes be known so that they have a following where they can then celebrate their success and inspire their followers
0: it is It is a complicated world. I mean it's no longer just train and win um, and even if, if if a person doesn't win, as you said, it doesn't mean that there's not value to the sponsor and I know you know for instance in Europe. Uh, with the UCI, you know, Helen Wyman and Steph Wyman, or now I think Katarina Nash on the cyclocross. And for those who are listening, don't know what cyclocross is. I'll, you know, it's a combination of pavement and grass and dirt and mud and a looped course. And I'll leave it at that. But the idea of trying to have a voice for both female athletes and to have this fan connection you know, as the pathway to growth. And sometimes I wonder, especially at the the international level organizations, if they get that, if they get that, you know, making the sport more available online is going to create greater growth opportunities versus just hiding it behind a paywall. And are they working against themselves by doing these short-term kind of monetary, you know, strategies, you know, against a longer-term growth strategy?
1: I think there's a lot of very complicated issues around how best to promote and support women and you know things that people should do to basically support and promote their own careers while considering the impact on women as a general population so in professional cycling right now you have things that you as an athlete can do to make it better for yourself and carve out success for yourself it might not be the best thing for all women as a whole but unfortunately, the sport is such that a lot of women have to make hard choices and sacrifices and do what they need to do to get by. Others have chosen to look at the broader picture and how can they make things better for all women, even if it means foregoing opportunities for themselves. And I think it's a very complicated issue. And there are smarter women than myself who have taken up the mantle of pursuing equality and opportunity and pushing for televised coverage and equal pay and more opportunities
0: and support for women in the sport. It is an interesting time, especially in relation to something like even mountain biking or cyclocross as a fan experience, because the women's races, generally speaking, in those two disciplines are more compelling in terms of the battle for the win than the men's races are, especially in cyclocross where the top rider is typically going to ride off and win by a minute or two, where the women's races, you don't know who's going to win until pretty close to the very end. And so this idea of which sport is more compelling to watch for fans and which one is more marketable, I think is, and I'd be interested in your reaction to this, is being flipped on its head a little bit.
1: What makes you say it's being flipped on its head?
0: I, by that I mean traditionally women in, the, in Europe, especially in cyclocross, speaking for that, might, it's been in the super prestige series, were put before juniors in terms of when they were racing. Right, and they were. There was even no consideration of putting them on television. Then there was the fight to put them on television, and the, the complaint was, "Well, would people be willing to watch women cycling because it's not as interesting?" Well, right now, men cycling after the first men's cyclocross, at least after the right. first two laps, it's you know who's going to win. Even before the first lap, you know, my, you know, Michael Vanderpool Van is going to win. But in the women's race, you really don't know who's going to win on that day, and the racing is, especially this last week's very competitive to the very end. And so I'm wondering for the promoters, for the people putting it on TV and for the people trying to sell people to show up, is the women's race becoming more of a um, attraction because of the quality of the performances and the competitiveness than the men's races are?
1: I think it really just depends on who you ask. There's people who wouldn't agree that women's racing is more interesting even if you know the finish is not clear from the start and even if whatever you're looking at there are people who are always going to think that the men's sport whatever it is cycling or any other sport is more interesting more competitive more challenging more worthy of their time and attention and there's people who think that women's sport is better and more interesting and from my perspective I think both can be very interesting and engaging it's never that fun to tune into a competition where the winner is guaranteed from the onset but you know I think for me, when I've looked at my relationship to promoting women's cycling and what I can do, I focused on what makes women's cycling marketable and not necessarily even looking at comparing it to men's or anything else, but just this is what we're doing. How can we sell this? What are our key points of value to sponsors, to promoters, to audiences? How can we leverage that? And you know, there will always be promoters that think the men's race is the premier event and the women's race is something they do because they have to, or they should or whatever. But those people, you know, I, I can't change their opinion. They're going to continue to have it. And fortunately there's enough people that see the value in women's sport and want to create at least an equal event or even a, a showcase event for women.
0: I know you have to go and eat your toast, so I don't want to keep you much longer, but you know this is a kind of like a wrap up question. What does success look like in five years for for USA cycling uh, in terms of the organization becoming more of what you all internally are hoping it to to become? I mean, I'm not going to define what success is, but like what would that look like in terms of yes, we've accomplished our goals and we're doing better at whatever it is we want to do better at?
1: Uh, I would say having a broader member community and having those members be more satisfied with USA Cycling's work. You know, we have have a decent satisfaction rate. The people on social media might sometimes make it seem like there's a lot of member discomfort. But when you look at who's commenting, how many people are commenting versus our total member population, we're talking about maybe 2% of our members take to social media to say negative things. But I would like to see it where... More people are in our community and fewer people are saying negative things. And I'd also really like for USA Cycling to have made a positive difference in American cycling, both from a competitive side and a non-competitive side. And that would include facilitating more kids riding, creating more opportunities for women, creating a community that is more representative of the diversity across American cycling creating safer cycling on and off roads um, and whatever other agenda items are important to the cycling community that usa cycling has found a way to hear those step up and take action
0: that sounds like a pretty achievable list that doesn't seem like a so what are you going to do next year after you accomplish that this year
1: (laughs) one step at a time i'm still working on (laughs) breakfast and we're going we're we're going into the afternoon here so i'm not terribly optimistic about how much i'll get done
0: well, I think not one step. I think one pedal stroke at a time might be, might be more appropriate a metaphor for us. But one step or one, you know, one dismount at a time. We can, you know, maybe have infinite number of cycling metaphors about the progress that's being made. <laughs> that would be great. All right. Well, thanks so much. Really appreciate it. Lindsay.
1: Of course, I'm happy to do it. Thanks for your time. We want to thank Lindsay
0: Goldman, who was the USA Cycling Director of Marketing when we recorded this, but is now the Director of Marketing at Allele Cycling, as well as Wadi Inc. Make sure you follow Lindsay on her LinkedIn, her Twitter, and the Dirt Field Podcast. She has her own podcast, and we'll be posting all of those links in the show notes at our website. If you wanna contribute to the conversation around this topic and other topics, you can now follow our Experience by Design LinkedIn page and contribute your thoughts. So go over to LinkedIn, look for Experience by Design, you'll find us, follow us, and share your thoughts and feedback about the episode. We look forward to hear from you. And you can also communicate with us directly at feedback at experiencexdesign.com. We always love to hear your feedback, hear your comments, and hear what you enjoy and what you'd like to hear more of. And also thanks for continuing to listen to and support the Experience by Design podcast and visit the Experience by Design studios. It really is amazing to be part of these conversations with our guests and to include you in them. We feel very fortunate for the chance to share parts of your day through these conversations. One of the great things about the show is that we really get to learn a lot and we hope you get to learn a lot through them. So get outside, ride a bike, go for a run, stay safely distant, Wear something around your face when you're out there. And tune in next week for another episode of Experience by Design. See you later, everybody. Thanks.